Hey, what up? Welcome back. Sorry we took a break last week. I was taking some time to read up and research this one. It's gonna be a fat one. So, thanks for your patience. What we're doing this week is we are looking at mythologies from mystical traditions. Specifically, mythologies that pertain to the creation of the cosmos. The creation of the world as we know it, existence as we find it. These are called cosmogenies. Cosmogenies, the beginning of the cosmos. And they are etiological myths. We're going to get all of the technical jargon right out in the beginning. So you're all up to scratch with it. All you laymen. Um, etiological because they explain how things came to be. Namely, how existence came to be. So we've tried to take all of the myths. I've tried to take all the myths here from all the different traditions. And try to see their commonalities here. A bit of a comparative move inspired by some famous mythologists, people like Carl Jung, um, Marseille Eliade. I'm pronouncing his name wrong, I know, but that is the perks of being an autodidact and dyslexic. And most importantly, Joseph Campbell, who was very popular for his monomyth, looking at myths across traditions and seeing the commonalities between them. So we're going to be looking for a grand myth, a meta-myth, something like that which will hopefully be satisfying and true on many levels, both, well, predominantly poetically, which may be a little difficult. As well, I hope that it has some, and we'll see this, this will be cool if it works in the end, if it has some truths that translate into the scientific myth that we have today of creation. Now, I'm going to qualify the way that I'm using myth very shortly, so don't worry. We're going to be looking for a process that hopefully is replicated or can be seen, can be projected to be replicated in biological processes, in cosmological, evolutionary, psychological, internal processes. And we're going to start to see this is going to start to get a bit trippy. <laughs> so hang with me. I didn't know whether I wanted to try and smush all these myths into one myth um, and then just present it all together and see if we could somehow satisfy um, and touch all the bases and all the myths without thinning it down too much or to present them parallel and then let you see the similarities this is going to be quite heretical <laughs> warning has been given i know there will be some people who like this but i also know i'm going to get a lot of hate mail which is good i love hate mail keep it coming. Okay, now two definitions. Firstly, a myth is not a lie. That is the way that myth is used in common jargon, but that is not how myth is used in the study of mythology. Myth is not a story, which is untrue. It is a truth told in the form of a story. I know that's a good line. I didn't make it up. So when I say something is a myth, I'm not calling it a lie. I'm calling it a truth in the form of a story or narrative. A truth that cannot be expressed in straightforward, analytical, descriptive, factual language because it transcends those categories. Very good. Now, there's a particular importance with creation myths, which is what we'll be looking at here today. Creation myths address, this is a quote as well, 
Creation myths address questions deeply meaningful to the society that shares them, revealing the central worldview and their framework for the self-identity of the culture and the individual in a universal context. So creation myths, which are some of the most prevalent myths amongst cultures, are mythologies that ground a society because we have this natural tendency to want to know how we got here, what we're doing here. Surprise, surprise. And none of us here showed up with a manual out of the womb, how to life. So we create these mythologies to explain how we get here, what we're doing, and where we're heading. So it's natural to want to know how on earth we got here. But the additional function of these creation myths is not simply the etiology, namely explaining how we got here, but it also provides this um, it also provides this soteriology, where we're heading, how we're getting back to. Because as we'll see in many of these myths, the idea is to return to the primordial state, to return to where we came from. And if you want to return, you gotta first figure out where you came from. Hence the beauty and importance of these myths. Now, because we're going to find a lot of similarity, we're going to have to ask the question why they're similar. And they're similar, I think, for one of two reasons. Firstly, because these traditions did not happen in total isolation, in vacuum. They were in communication with one another, so they shared to some degree and influenced each other's cosmogenies and cosmologies and theories and mythologies and theologies. And, but I think more significantly, particularly in mysticism, when one believes that mysticism is based in a true phenomena of mysticism, a unitive experience, when, then, when one then goes to reconcile that unity, which they believe to be the ultimate and the primordial, with the multiplicity which they see in everyday life, with the many around them, there aren't that many options than to devise a schema, a myth, where the one somehow multiplies into the many. And we'll see that there are these almost logical steps of progression that these traditions find which flow from that experience, from, from, the, from that dual experience, from the experience of unity in the mystical experience and the experience of multiplicity in everyday life. In the reconciling between these two experiences emerges somewhat naturally the mystical cosmology. How do you like that? Now, don't worry if this has gone over your head. It is over my head too, I will tell you that. I'm just going to throw it out there, and together we're going to see what we can make of this mess. I'm looking forward to your feedback, and here we go. Long introduction. Wow, well done. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at a series of traditions. We're going to look at Egyptian myths, Greek myths, Greco-Roman myths, Neoplatonistic myths, Gnosticism, Hermeticism, Kabbalah, Sufism, Theosophy, Hinduism, Buddhism, Chinese, and then some scientific cosmology, biology. Um, did I mention Christian myths? Yes, we'll do that too. Don't worry. And we're going to see their common elements in them in this metaphysical metamyth of mysticism. Kaboom. What we're going to do is we're going to pause at this point, now that we've had all this introduction out of the way, and next week you're going to get the next installment where we're going to talk about the actual myths from these various traditions and seeing their intense amount of similarity and differences and how that is going to play into some other theories and spaces that we're going to talk about catch you later subscribe stay tuned hope you love this love you
In the beginning, there was one, and there was chaos. In Egyptian mythology, this is called Nu. In Hebrew, it's called Tahu Vavo. In Hinduism, we have a text from the Rig Veda which reads, Darkness there was at first, by darkness hidden. Without distinctive marks, all this was water. That which, becoming by the void, was covered. The one by force of heat came into being. In Christian mysticism, according to Yakuburma, the Christian mystic we've chosen to use for this exposition, there was a dark, embryonic, amorphous abyss. In science, according to physicist Lawrence Krauss, there was a quantum vacuum, a void filled with quantum fluctuations. In Greek, it is called chaos. But chaos isn't exactly the correct translation. It's more like emptiness, vast void, chasm, abyss, a gap, a gape, or an opening space, an expanse of air. In alchemy, the primeval chaos is imagined as a formless congestion of all elements. From this chaos, or co-eternal, co-terminus, or prior to said chaos, emerges mat in Egypt, which represents truth, balance, order, harmony, law, morality, and justice. Epirion in Greece, the divine substance from which all is generated and to which all shall return. In Pythagoreanism, hen, the number one. Similarly, in Neoplatonism and Neopythagoreanism and Gnosticism, we find the monad, the one which is beyond being, which emanates the rest of the universe. In Taoism, you have the Tao, which produces Wuji, the limitless or infinite, Wu, meaning without or isn't, and Ji, the highest utmost point, to reach the end, to attain or to exhaust. In Kabbalah, we speak of the Ein Sof, again, Ein, without, Sof, end, or Atzmut, which, like in Sufism, emanates what is described metaphorically as a light called Or Ein Sof, the light of the Ein Sof, or Nuri Ehadi, the light of the one in Sufism, which desires to manifest itself in multiplicity, coming out of its self-isolated oneness, Zahat of Allah, the Divine Essence. But one is a lonely number, the one desired to know and to love. It is a desire that begets creation. In Buddhism, for example, although they don't speak of creation, it is tanha, thirst or desire, that begets the endless cycle of death and rebirth, known as samsara. According to many a mystic, God is moved by the desire to reveal themselves to themselves, a desire for self-awareness, the ultimate mystery striving to know herself. The desire to manifest itself draws itself out of its hidden loneliness. The craving arouses the becoming of the other, for without her there is nothing but itself, whom it can know and love. The desire for the other by the one, which has no other, is also spoken of by the Kabbalists as Sha'ashuei HaMelech Ba'atzmo, the delight of the king with himself, the autoerotic stirrings within Ein Sof, and is likewise found in the Egyptian myth, where Atum creates a plethora of gods through an act of autoeroticism with the female principle within him. There is a necessity for the other, because consciousness arises only through opposition. Consciousness is always consciousness of something. Self-consciousness only arises through the encounter with otherness. Nothing may be revealed to itself without opposition, writes the Christian mystic Yakuburma. If God is a conscious being, then something 
that is, so to say, not God, must stand opposed to it. God requires creation to become conscious. For genuine self-revelation, God must express themselves as a being who may freely choose either to love themselves or to reject themselves. Only a being as such is truly independent, truly an other to God. So in order to create space for the other, the one retracted into itself, temporarily forgetting him, her, your, our, myself, whereby creating an empty space that would allow the illusion of another in its own image, the requirement for a dream, the womb of creation. Because if you're taking up all the space in your universe, there's no room for a relationship with another. You must make space for love. In Egyptian mythology, the gods give rise to the sun, typically represented by the god Ra, whose birth forms an empty space of light and dryness within the dark water. In Kabbalah, particularly that of Isaac Luria, whose anniversary we just commemorated, this process is called Tzimtzum, contraction. This act of contracting, retracting, concealing, and hiding is also called Helem, and continues to occur through the process of creation, as we shall see. In Hinduism, we find a similar idea of Maya. In Christianity, it is described as God drawing into itself, a retreat to the center, an act of contraction, or clearing of a space, kenosis. The light contracted into darkness, leaving only an infinitesimally small point of light, eager to expand into the darkness. This act of contraction followed by emanation can also be seen as a divine death and rebirth, which leads us to another mythic element which overlaps here, but a different metaphor for death and birth is used, that of tearing apart or disintegrating, followed by a reconstitution, spiragamos as it's known in the Greek. In Greco-Roman mythology, we have this idea of a dying and resurrecting god, death represented by winter and rebirth by the spring. The plant or seed that dies and ruts in the fertile ground as a prerequisite to being reborn, representing the cycle of death, resurrection, reincarnation, and immortality. The imagery and ritual surrounding this myth is the tearing apart, the dismembering of the beast or the god who is scattered and then reunited, whose body often then becomes the objects from which the universe is built. As we see in other myths such as the Norse myth of Ymir or the Chinese myth of Pangu, who emerged from the cosmic egg which coalesced from the primordial formless chaos, Pengu then separated yin from yang, heaven from earth, and when he dies, his body becomes all the parts of the world. In Hinduism, as told by Alan Watts, we have the Atma Yajna, the act of self-sacrifice whereby God gives birth to the world. Prajapati, Vishnu, or Brahma creates the world by an act of self-dismembering or self-forgetting, whereby the one becomes many, a single actor playing multiple parts. When the play comes to an end, she wakes up to find herself again, only to begin the play once more the one dying into the many, and the many dying into the one. As it is written in the Upanishads, then he realized, I, indeed, I am this creation, for I have poured it forth from myself. In that way, he became his creation.
Stepping back from the mythic to the cosmic process we were following earlier, that empty space that we've generated inside ourselves to create space for the illusion, perhaps, of the other. There is a dynamic by which emanation within or return to the empty space, the void, occurs. This takes place in one of two ways. According to Jewish mysticism, there is some residual presence left behind in the emptiness, called Rishima, some divine fluctuation in the vacuum of the other, a flicker of light, which evokes and calls forth a return of self-consciousness to the unconscious darkness. In other mysticisms, there is a friction within the state of emptiness, a clashing of two desires, the desire for self and the desire to surrender and open to something other than self. The energy generated by this friction creates a flash, a spark, an explosion. A spark of immense darkness within the hidden hiddenness, a twirling cloud of vapor, embryonic gaseous fluids, form forming in formlessness, meaning in meaninglessness, word in silence. Deep within the spark gushed a flow, splaying colors like a rainbow. She split and did not split. Under the impact of splitting, a single hidden supernal point shone. Beyond that point, nothing is known. Out of the chaos, she forms substance, making what isn't into what is. That was my poem, riffing on the poetry of the Zohar. I hope you liked it. This spark, this fire, this light, created in this moment of self-surrender, paves the way for self-awareness. The light produced within the dark illuminates the mirror of the hidden image of God. This spark, then, is the first emanation in a series of gradations of emanations until we get the world as we know her. The spark splitting itself from its original unity, replicating and multiplying exponentially, like a single embryonic cell dividing and dividing and dividing. In Pythagoreanism, the monad begets the dyad. In Neoplatonism, the first emanation from the one is nous, mind or intellect, which is the perfect image of the one and the perfect archetype of all things to follow. In Gnosticism, we get the pleroma, the fullness, the expanse of light, followed by eons. The gods and the supernal light or consciousness descends through a series of stages, gradations, worlds or planes, becoming progressively more material and embodied. In Kabbalah, beginning with Keter, the infinitesimal point is the first step of the Kav, the beam of light, passing through a series of parsas, curtains, lessening, coalescing, coagulating the divine flow. Likewise in Taoism, everything that exists is merely an aspect of Qi, which, condensed, becomes life, diluted, is infinite potential. In Sufism, the realm of first manifestation, the first step of divine descent, Alam Iyahud, the world of oneness, is where the divine essence manifests itself in the form of the light of the Prophet, as a manifestation of God's self, a separate and yet not separate entity. Here God is first called Allah, which in Arabic means the worshipable one, because here for the first time there is an externalized being who can worship God. Like a certain Hindu mystic would say, I have divided myself into God and me. I become the worshipped and I worship myself. Why not? God is I. Why not worship myself? This is what Burma would call the self-dividing of the infinite expanse of unconditional self into the I and the not I. In Taoism, the process as recorded in the Tao Te Ching goes like this. The Tao produced one, one produced two, two produced three, three produced all things. In which, according to parts of Taoism, means that Wuji, as we said before, the unlimited, 
the one which has no limitation, which in religious Taoism gets the personification of, get this, heavenly king of chaotic, never-ending primordial beginnings, produce Taiji, the supreme ultimate, the state of undifferentiated absolute and infinite potential, the oneness before duality. That is Tao creating one, and then one produces two. Taiji produces duality by separating yin from yang. Following this first emanation, if you're keeping track of just the whole cosmos in its first moments, of hatching, birthing, exploding, comes the second stage of emanation. In Neoplatonism, the world soul comes following the nous we mentioned earlier, as a bridge between it and our world. The world soul can go one of two ways, by either hanging onto its origin and unity in the nous, or it can roll with the physical world and become divided into many individual souls. In Pythagoreanism and Neo-Pythagoreanism, the dyad gives birth to the point, giving birth to the line, giving birth to circles and stick figures, etc. There is also an important and often internally disputed transition here in the scheme of emanation from emanator to emanation, from creator to creation, God to other. Where do I end and you begin? In Kabbalah, we would call this gradual transition from Ma'atzil to Ne'atzal in Olam Ha'atzilut. In Sufism, this transition takes place in Alami Jabrut, the world or stage of the bridge, which is bridging the two, emanator and emanation, and is also the realm where the human soul is first formed. We're not going to continue tracing the story of emanations because each tradition has an intricate chain of becoming, sharing lots of unique similarities and unique variations as we've seen. I'll leave you with that to continue to explore for yourself, partially because I don't want to get bogged down in cosmologies, and because I want to continue with the thread of the story, the mythic, metaphysic, cosmic narrative that is heading somewhere. Eventually, creation is complete. In Gnosticism, God orders the elements into the seven heavens, the seven spheres. The word then leaps out from the material elements, which were previously unconscious, or in other traditions, is spoken or breathed into them. God then creates androgynous human in God's own image and handed over his creation to its stewardship. In Sufism, God created the physical world of Nasut, hiding himself in the human under many, many layers. This next stage may come out of order for some traditions, so forgive me for that, but it's a super important one theologically and psychologically, and that is the stage of cataclysm, rupture, fall, or forgetting. In Neoplatonism, our world ought to be so pervaded by the world soul that its various distinct parts should remain in perfect harmony. But as we know for ourselves, unity and harmony are more rare than strife and discord, unfortunately. This is the fall from unity to divisiveness, from harmony to cacophony. In Kabbalah it's called the Shvira, the shattering and the fall slash descent of the godly soul from her high heights to her lowly lows. In Sufism, it's the Nisyan, the forgetting, which introduces the possibility for stupid things like greed, jealousy, and envy. This is represented by Adam and Eve eating from the tree in the Garden of Eden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which represents disharmony, the tree of duality, which separates unified nature into opposing parts, each withdrawn into themselves, rejecting unity, rejecting life. 
In some of these falling and shattering stories, there is an additional shared element that some of the myths have of fallen sparks. In Kabbalah, these are the divine nitzotzim, which fall from the pleroma into a lower instantiation of existence, waiting for us humans to regather them and reunite them with the divine. In Gnosticism, the material world is created by a demiurge, the lower created god, who, in the process of creation, traps the divine sparks that fell into the material realm within the human body. But all this happened with a purpose, a telios, to return to the self, but this time with a great degree of gold in tow, a returning light greater than the pure light that left, the perfect one which could not be perfected, shattered itself so that it could put itself back together with veins of gold filling the cracks, a journey from simple, unthinking, unreflective, unmanifest unity to a rich, diverse, complex, harmonious unity, shattering the white light to produce a rainbow. And with that, the loop is closed, the never-ending and never-beginning circle, the final becoming the first, the son gives birth to the father, to realize that it was never really other at all, that the concealment, the illusion, was just an illusion, the dream was all a dream. The way this process of return takes place is described differently by the various traditions, but they share, it seems, a common core. In Neoplatonism, meticulous work is done to show the trajectory of being from the one to the many, and the journey of the human soul therein, in order to provide us with a roadmap to show the way back for the soul to return to its source. In Gnosticism, we have the idea that the soul must turn around to return to the one. This is called epistrophe the soul retracing its steps through contemplation. Salvation is achieved through gnosis, that is, knowledge of your origin, your present situation, and your destination. Know that you have fallen from the divine, and you shall return to the divine, for you are the divine. In Hermeticism, the aim is to become one with God, which can be achieved through the initiation into the divine mysteries. In the Corpus Hermeticum, Tat, the son of Hermes, experiences union with the universe and proclaims, I am in heaven, in earth, in water, in air, I am in animals and plants, in the womb, before the womb, after the womb, everywhere. This is the final good for those who have received knowledge, gnosis, to be made God. In Kabbalah we have the process of tshuva, returning, and dvekut, cleaving to God and becoming one with God. On the cosmic level this leads to tikkun, a regathering of the sparks, and the reunion of the divine masculine and the divine feminine. On the global level, the ramifications of this is the world reaching a messianic state of harmony. In Sufism, the role of the prophet is to remind, that is, to guide the people in remembering what they already know, to return them to the primordial nature, Fitra, the image of God. For Burma, the self of unconscious darkness, the slumber and delusional selfishness must die in us so that the true self, the soul, may be awakened just as God died in her darkness before she was reborn. This awakening is the salvation and realization of God themselves. God, beginning in absolute concealment and unconsciousness, becomes manifest. The final moment of this manifestation is mankind, who struggles to wake up, who becomes aware of themselves and of the whole world as a reflection of themselves. And this is simultaneously God's awakening, God's self-knowledge. In mankind, God as a self-conscious being is born into the world. However, this salvation and enlightenment is not a permanent condition. 
Awakening is a perpetual struggle, for struggle is written into the very nature of being. And with that, we start all over again. And that is represented in the cyclical nature of many of these beautiful and ancient cosmologies. The play runs over again and again, each time with greater degrees of beauty and infinite complexity. As we know from modern mathematics, there are infinities that are larger than others, and likewise there are loves that are infinitely deeper than others. So, off you go, hiding yourself and finding yourself in the cosmic hide-and-seek. Have fun, you trickster god, you god who loves to hide. May we find you, find us, and on that day, you will be one, and your name will be one. And know that in the end, it is all just a game, the most beautiful game ever. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da